going to quickly share my screen with everyone. Just give me one moment here. Okay. Good morning, everyone. If you don't know me, my name is Megan. Um, I'm just going to do announcements and then I get to interview Sarah Kirkland today, which I'm excited about. Um, so first want to start off uh, saying that we live on CMAF territory, part of the unceded lands of the Stolo peoples. Um, myself and Sarah will be on the chat today. So feel free to uh, type in all your comments and everything down there. And then also, as always, whatever your camera preference is, if like we love to see your faces, but if it's better for you to have your camera off, that's great too. Entirely up to you. Don't feel pressured either way. Um, also in the chat, you can message people directly. Um, so if there's a comment you want to say to somebody, um, you can select their name in the drop down. You can send them a good morning message or whatever comment you want to say, or you can send a message to the whole group. And then at the end of the message, we'll be having our Q&R uh, question and response. Um, and then also, this is your reminder to gather your elements for communion that will take place after the Lecto Divina. And then if you could use prayer, please let any of us know. You can either put it in the chat today. You can send an email to Sarah or anyone on the steering team or let anyone know so we can get it added to our list here and be praying for you. And then also, if you'd like to stay connected via social media, here's all of the, all of the handles and stuff here. And then also, of course, you can do things offline, like go for a walk or phone calls or all of that, too. Oh, my computer is not wanting to go to the next slide. Let's see. Hmm. I haven't had this happen before. Let me just escape. Hmm. Oh. Here we go. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, and then there is an Abbotsford Community Railway cleanup on Wednesday, April 28th from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. Um, there's information here. Um, and then I'm not sure maybe Sarah is just going to be posted in the Facebook group if people want to refer back to it later. Yes, so you don't need to memorize this all now. Okay. And then we have Food for Friends this Wednesday. If you would like to um, take a contribution to Food for Friends, the address is here at the bottom of the screen. Um, and then on next Sunday, which is May 5th, we'll have a youth breakout room during the message. So sign on to Zoom on a different device from your parents so that you can get sent to that breakout room. Um, thank you so much to everyone who has continued to give to the church during this time. Um, if you would also like to contribute, uh, the link is here or it is just on bridgeonline.ca. Then we got a fun meme here. I'll give you a second to read that. Um, and then we also have uh, YouTube and Spotify for uh, the music. So uh, Sarah Kirkland picked up the music for today. So you can find the link on our website. 
Okay, I'll stop sharing my screen. And then I get to interview Sarah this morning. Get my computer set up here. Okay, awesome. Hi, Sarah. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks. How about you? I'm good. Thanks. We kind of have a fun connection that probably people don't know about that when your parents sold their house, my parents bought the house from your parents. So I always think that, <laughs> that we're like kind of connected. I still occasionally get mail forwarded from <laughs> your parents to me to send up to my sister. So <laughs> that's great. Um, okay, so I'm gonna ask you a few questions if that's okay. Um, where do you live? Uh, well, currently I live in Abbotsford, but um, I was just sharing with a couple of people before church. I'm actually taking a leave of absence from work next year, and um, I'm going to move up to Vernon, where awesome. my family's living, and just take the year to figure out if that's where I want to settle or not. Hey. So at the moment, I'm here in Abbotsford, but uh, that could be changing in just a couple months. My place is listed as of tomorrow morning. Okay, wow. That's big steps. That's exciting, though. Yeah. Awesome. Um, what is an ordinary moment that gives you joy? I really like getting up in the morning and just seeing the sunshine coming in, even if the blinds are closed. Um, my place is east facing and north facing so I get some of the morning sun and just knowing that it's already a bright day that's wonderful yeah awesome that's great um, and then we're going to do a quick rapid fire round um, would you rather read the book or watch the movie book first and then the movie to compare Actually, yeah, that's me too <laughs> <laughs> um, would you rather camp in the countryside or take a city break it would depend on the city. If it's somewhere international, then absolutely let me go and explore the city. Okay, awesome. Um, is ice cream a staple food, yes or no? Close, but I'd rather something else sweet instead. Okay, okay. What would that sweet thing be? Uh, brownies, chocolate, something along those lines. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you had a spare hundred dollars to spend, what would you do with it? Uh, well, normally I'd say I would take my family out somewhere to eat, but this would probably just be get takeout for the family. Um, when I get up to Vernon, I'm going to with my parents and sister for a couple of months while I try and figure out a place to live. So I will be owing them some, uh, some gratitude for the next little while. So I would treat them like that. Awesome. That'll probably be kind of fun too, to be like all back together again under one roof for a short amount of time. Um, <laughs> and then my last question for you is fill in the blank. My honest hope is blank. Equality. Mm. Just across the board, racial equality, gender equality, ev everything. Just get rid of this idea of the other and seeing people as different and just treat everyone as humans yes. with the, the respect and the kindness that that entails. Mm -hmm. 
Awesome answer. That's great. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thanks for letting us get to know you a little bit better this morning. So and we'll be praying for everything to go well with your move and that the everything with the house will go well. So yay. Awesome. Thank you so much. And then to pass things over to uh, Diane Jansen. Um, she's going to, um, yes, go ahead with the Lecto Divina. Good morning from the bridge to everyone out there. Um, I'm going to be doing the Lectio Divina and we're going to be reading Psalm 23 from Nan Merrill's book called Psalms for praying. And I will start, uh, I will be reading it three times and start with a question um, before each reading. Um, just, just allowing a phrase or a word to stand out for you. And just to remember that God is teaching us to listen and to seek him in silence. Um, he does not reach out and grab us, but gently uh, invites us ever more deeply into his presence. So the question is, before I read the psalm, is where does Jesus want to meet me in this psalm? So I think it's going to come up on the screen. If not, I will... Okay, I will read it. Oh, my beloved, you are my shepherd. I shall not want. You bring to green pastures for rest and lead me beside still waters, renewing my spirit. You restore my soul. You lead me in the path of goodness to follow love's way. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow and of death, I am not afraid, for you are ever with me. Your rod and your staff, they guide me. They give me strength and comfort. You prepare a table before me in the presence of all my fears. You bless me with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the heart of the beloved forever. So I will read it a second time. And the question is, what emotion arises and where do you hold it in your body? Oh, my beloved, you are my shepherd. I shall not want. You bring me to green pastures for rest and lead me beside still waters, renewing my spirit. You restore my soul you lead me in the path of goodness to follow love's way. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow and of death, 
I am not afraid, for you are ever with me. Your rod and your staff, they guide me. They give me strength and comfort. You prepare a table before me in the presence of all my fears. You bless me with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the heart of the beloved forever. I will read it for the third time. And the question is, what does Jesus want to say to you? Oh, my beloved, you are my shepherd. I shall not want. You bring me to green pastures for rest and lead me beside still waters, renewing my spirit. You restore my soul. You lead me in the path of goodness to follow love's way. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow and of death, I am not afraid for you are ever with me. Your rod and your staff, they guide me. They give me strength and comfort. You prepare a table before me in the presence of all my fears. You bless me with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the heart of the beloved forever. As I sat with this, I the phrase that came to me is my cup overflows. And I held it in my heart and the emotion was gratitude. And I felt she felt in myself, it said, this is who I am. But then I kind of said, well, Jesus, this, did, that, did you say that? Or did I just say that myself? But then I heard him say, Diane, I know who you are. You need to know who you are. And you need to affirm who you are. So my cup overflows with a heart of gratitude. This is who I am. So Lectio is like a prayer and give to Jesus, our good shepherd, what you discovered. Give to Jesus what you found within your heart. And you and I shall dwell in the heart of the beloved forever. Amen. Good morning. As we move into this time of communion, I'll just invite you to um, collect your elements if you haven't already done that. Um, as it was Earth Week this past, 
this past week or Earth Day this past week. Uh, I wanted to bring that theme a little bit into Communion this Sunday. Um, so I'm going to read some excerpts from a communion liturgy by Olivia Smith. Though creation sometimes weeps, we wait lovingly for you, God. For you created the heavens, earth, and all that is in them. You cast sunbeams, you open flowers, and you feed insects. You are beyond the galaxies, under the oceans, and inside each grain of wheat. You could sustain all of your creation, but you will not without us. Thank you for the wonders of creation and for your great trust in us. Though humanity sometimes weeps, we wait lovingly for you, God. For you smiled on an outcasted Hagar, blessing her descendants. You guided the doubtful Israelites, leading them to freedom. You spoke through the judges and the prophets, providing words of wisdom. You lived among us as a teacher, healer, and friend, giving us a sacred path to follow. You could have made us self-sustaining, but you did not. Your love sustains us. Though the church sometimes weeps, we wait lovingly for you, God. For centuries, Christians of different customs have gathered to commune with you and each other through the sharing of this feast. In their partaking, you have been with them, just as you are with us now. And so we join with our siblings around the world by remembering that on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, blessed it, broke it, and shared it with his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this, in, do this for the remembrance of me. And after supper, Jesus took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it for all to drink, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you and for all people for the forgiveness of sin. Do this for the remembrance of me. God, we remember and give thanks for your son, and we ask that you bless and pour your spirit on these simple things, bread and wine. Make this broken bread whole in our taking, make this full cup overflow in our sharing. With these elements, nourish and sustain us, our creator, our redeemer, our sustainer. Praise be to you now, tomorrow, and forever. Amen. Just want to pray for Lynn as she's next up to share with us. And thank you, Lord, for Lynn. Thank you for her story, for the way she's experienced your love. And bless her as she shares with us this morning. Amen. You need to unmute them. Lynn, you need to unmute them.
Can you hear me? Got it. Got it? Okay. Thanks, Sylvia. Yes, um, I'm Lynn, and I've been at the bridge ever since the church first started, and I actually don't even remember how many years ago that was, 12 or something, I guess. I'm not a preacher. I'm not a theologian. I'm not a Bible scholar whatsoever. So this morning, I'm not going to be preaching. I'm just going to be telling you a story, a story about belonging. Um, I'll start with a scripture reading from John 10, 11 to 18. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I was going to read Psalm 23 as well, but I think, I think we've got it fresh in our minds. So I will just uh, leave that and move right on to what these verses say to me. Uh, they speak of a shepherd. They speak of a good shepherd, a shepherd who includes me. A good shepherd that not only includes me, but knows me. These verses speak to me of belonging, of being accepted, being cared for. Not only being cared for, but being known being led by this shepherd to places that are good for me, for me, where my soul can be restored, where both my soul and my body can be fed with what they need most. One thing I need, I've always needed, is a sense of belonging. I would say belonging is a fundamental human need. Everyone needs to belong somewhere. Everyone needs to know that they have a place, that they are acceptable, that they have value, and that they're a necessary piece in the puzzle of life. That they have a part to play in their world, a part that is needed and welcomed. But what happens when you don't feel like this, when you feel like you don't belong, when you feel that you don't have value? What happens when the message you receive from those closest to you, the message which you then internalize is that you don't fit in, you don't belong, you have no part to play? You might feel lost, you might feel hurt, you might feel angry. In my own life, I've always experienced feeling hurt as being angry. It wasn't a conscious choice, that's just how I was wired. It was my default setting. In retrospect, I can see logically how showing anger could seem a lot safer than showing vulnerability because anger gives the illusion of strength. I wasn't hurt, I was mad. I could go on the offensive and pretend that I was strong. There was a lot of other stuff going on underneath, lots of other feelings, but to the world and particularly to my parents, I just looked angry, defensive, belligerent and aggressive. I'll give you some background. In my family, I was the youngest of four kids, four daughters. Apparently I was very cute and contented as a baby and a small child. I was very happy to entertain myself by watching what my older sisters did. I was an easy kid by all accounts. My parents were educated people from educated backgrounds. They were both trained teachers. What mattered in our home was following the rules, behaving yourself, working hard and being smart, especially working hard and being smart. Obviously we were expected to do well at school, and things started off well for me when I began to attend school. I learned to read and write quickly. I became a prolific reader. I loved to write, especially stories. I wasn't ever sporty. 
physical activity was not really part of my life other than learning to swim because, well, we live on the coast and everybody needs to know how to swim. Plus, you can eventually become a swimming teacher and lifeguard and put yourself through university. All of my sisters became lifeguards, taught swimming, and put themselves through university this way. My parents were eminently practical, so swimming, which you could eventually turn into a money-making job, was in. But playing a sport or physical activity for fun or health or competition didn't matter. My parents preferred intellectual pursuits and cultural events to being active. I grew up singing in the church choir, listening to classical music and going to live theater events. I realize now how lucky I was to have had these things in my life. By anyone's standards, I grew up in a culturally enriched environment in a nice middle-class family in a nice middle-class neighborhood. About the teaching swimming and the lifeguarding, it was important to have a means of paying my way through university because in our family, going to university was a given, like death and taxes. You couldn't be from my family and not go to university. I'm not sure why none of us ever questioned this. Maybe it had something to do with having two teachers for parents. We were all taught that education was the pathway to a successful life. I know my parents weren't wrong about the high value of a good education. What they didn't understand was it was never going to be enough. We did a lot of camping while I was growing up all over North America, as far south as Texas and as far north as Alaska. I have wonderful memories of spending weeks on end, sleeping in tents beside lakes, oceans, even glaciers. I also have not so great memories of long days of driving in the back of an old Volkswagen van, and sister wars in the back seat, with my father threatening to pull over and wallop everybody if we didn't stop fighting. The days were long and I learned to spend hours staring out the window, making up stories in my head to pass the time. We sometimes stopped driving to check out some local site. We always visited the top tourist spots. You know, hydroelectric dams, for example, because every kid needs to know how electricity is produced. The Hoover Dam near Las Vegas, for example. We never entered a Vegas tourist spot, but we sure made sure that we hit the Hoover Dam. Fortunately for me, museums also made the cut and I still love museums to this day. I am that annoying person who has to read the little card describing each exhibit, each exhibit, every exhibit. Did you know there's a huge museum in Wisconsin? It's called the Circus World Museum. Everything you ever wanted to know about circuses. All these varied experiences have made me pretty good at games like Trivial Pursuit, as long as my partner knows the answer for the sports category. Obviously, with my family background, I know nothing about sports. Puberty inevitably hit, and I became somewhat plump. Being bright and doing well at school was no longer enough to get the approval I wanted and needed. I needed to also be the right size. I discovered as I headed into puberty that being chubby is not okay. There was lots of stigma attached to carrying extra weight in my family. I'm not sure why, maybe my parents thought it reflected badly on them. All I knew was my sisters would help themselves to second helpings at meals, but I was not allowed. Why I asked, how come she can have a second helping and I can't? Because she doesn't have a weight problem. I was told. 
I was told I'd be so pretty if I'd only lose weight. I was told to write down my weight every day on a chart so my father could make sure I wasn't getting any fatter. What's the point of this story? Only to say that the message of you're not good enough hit at an early age in my life. Not acceptable, not worthy in your current state. You don't belong, change required. The effect was that I was hurt, obviously. I felt lesser, inferior. I'm sure my parents didn't mean to hurt me. I'm sure they never expected I'd still be telling this story 50 years later. But it did hurt a lot. The treatment of my weight wasn't the only hurtful issue. I was the youngest of four kids and my mom was really ready to do something else besides being a mom. She was a smart, capable woman. She had other mountains to climb. I wasn't a baby anymore. I could look after myself, right? And my dad had always been fairly distant. I felt like an afterthought in our home. The message for me seemed to be, you aren't important and you don't merit our attention. I felt invisible. I was hurting and in response, I became rebellious against my parents, against school, against anything that would have required submission and conformity because I felt forgotten, insignificant, hurt, and just so angry. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Enneagram, but I think the fact that I'm a type one, the reformer, does play into how I responded to the influences in my life. If you're a type one, you must be perfect and you're responsible for everything. You must save the world. It's only now that I'm beginning to learn that everything in life doesn't depend on me, that I cannot and should not feel responsible for every ill that is in the world, that it isn't my job to fix them. But when I was a teen, as a type one, it was clear to me that it was my fault. I didn't warrant much attention from my parents and also clear that there was no point trying to fix it. Nothing had worked so far, time to try something new. What followed was pretty typical. I acted out, as kids do, by breaking rules wherever I found them. I became a smoker, which my father found highly offensive since he was a reformed smoker. I indulged in alcohol and drugs. I had inappropriate boyfriends much older than me with all the behaviors that leads to. Obviously, none of this caused me to feel loved and accepted, but I was thumbing my nose at the very idea of acceptance, convinced that acceptance was not in the cards for me. Truthfully, I was a very sad and lonely teen. I felt like a loser, but I conformed just enough to graduate from school. I didn't tank as a student because I was a bright kid, but I certainly didn't try very hard. Once out of high school, I headed to college to a fine arts diploma program. I had no real direction at this point, but art school seemed easy enough. I'd always been artsy. At this point in my life, I had a long-term boyfriend. At some point in my rebellious teens, I had determined that having exploitive loser boyfriends was self-defeating. The guy I was with by the time I headed to college was noteworthy by being a decent human being. Despite being rather a lost soul himself, his name was Steve. Steve, while a huge upgrade on the creeps I had formerly dated, also really liked to party and indulge in illegal substances. We dated for about a year, and by the end of that year, I had begun to realize that while I was in a better situation in my romantic life, in most ways, my life was just the same. I still felt like a misfit, I was permanently angry at my parents, and I felt utterly lost. But that was about to change. 
if you were to ask Steve, he would tell you that he noticed something was going on in my life when we were both attending Langara College. He attending a program that met on an upper floor of the college, me in the fine arts program, all its studios on the ground. He would sometimes glance out the window and see me out there in the, in the quadrangle that was outside the studios, talking with another girl who was holding some sort of book and pointing to it. This girl whose name was Sue was in my fine arts program. And by a funny coincidence, we recognized each other right at the beginning of the year from a brownie group from many years earlier that had met at my childhood church. We became friends, which has always been a mystery to me. She was an ardently born again Christian who carried a big Bible with her everywhere she went. She was in all my classes. And since it was a small program, I got to know her quite well. I thought it was a real shame she was so religious because I thought she'd be fun at a party. But even though I tried multiple times, I could never get her to come out with me. She was always kind and she always spoke the truth as she saw it. That meant that she sometimes spoke out against the lifestyle I was living. It annoyed me, but I respected her for it. And I was miserable enough to think about some of the things she said. After all, it wasn't like I was really enjoying my life anyway. The only bright spot in my life at that point was Steve, but we were really just drifting aimlessly along together, and neither of us with any clue what our life should be about. Anyway, Sue loaned me a book. It wasn't one of those dramatic personal testimony stories, not the cross and the switchblade or something like that, but rather a skinny little book by the Anglican theologian John Stott. It was called Basic Christianity. Looking back, I know God can truly use absolutely anything to get hold of a person because he used that skinny, dry little book to get hold of me. I've always loved the story of the woman who wept over Jesus' feet and dried his feet with her tears. I imagine her to be someone who hasn't been accepted, someone who doesn't belong, doesn't fit in. I've heard that she may have been Mary Magdalene, a prostitute, someone who would have been considered a sinful person. Was she angry on the outside, but hurting on the inside, like me? I wonder. What is clear, though, is that Jesus doesn't seem to be overly concerned with the fact that her community considers her a sinner. In fact, I can't think of anyone mentioned in the scriptures besides Jesus who accepted people just as they were without attaching conditions or accepting them. Anyone else who accepted them without chastising them for the lives they've lived up to that point. The Pharisees who were with Jesus when Mary wept over his feet knew what she'd been. And that seems to have been the only thing they cared about. It didn't matter what her backstory was. Maybe she'd been abused as a child or abandoned at a young age with no acceptable way to survive. Maybe she turned to prostitution rather than starve. That would have been a reason. Nobody would have chosen the life of a prostitute given the condemnation such a woman would have received from the culture around her. We don't know her reasons. I think she was most likely a victim of circumstances that put her in an awful situation. But all her community cared about was that she broke their rules was a sinner, never mind the reasons why. Just like nobody bothered to ask why I was behaving the way I was behaving, living the life I was living. Anyway, back to John Stott's book. There I was in my bedroom late at night. By this point in my life, my sisters had all moved out of the family home and moved on with their lives. 
My parents had a vacation property and were in the habit of going there every weekend. I was a teen. My friends were in my own community. I wasn't interested in hanging out with my parents two hours from home every weekend. So I was at home alone. It was late. I started reading the book. As I think back, I know something struck me, something I'd never understood from many years of attending church with my family, something I'd given up doing a great many years previously. It was this, that I was, by this book's definition, one of the people Jesus came for. That when Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly, he was talking about me. Nowadays, I probably wouldn't try to interest anyone in God by starting with the idea that they were a mess in need of fixing. But you need to understand, at this point in my life, I knew very well that I was messing up my life. That I didn't have a clue, and I was sick of it. At that time, accepting the truth that I was messed up and needed help made perfect sense to me. The other thing in the book that struck me was that Jesus' death had something to do with me. I didn't know anything about cruciform love, didn't know the word, only learned that one in the last year or so. I didn't know enough to either agree or disagree with the atonement theory, never heard of it. But somehow, on a heart level, I understood that Jesus' death was somehow connected to my messes, my problems, my bad decisions. I had heard the Easter story my whole life, but had never made a connection between Jesus' death on the cross and me, my actions, my life, my needs. On a conscious intellectual level, I didn't get it at all. But somehow, despite all that, at that moment, the Spirit of God filled my room, and I was utterly stricken by my need for him. At the exact same time, I felt an overwhelming sense of his love for me. It was a visceral sensory experience. The room was filled with his presence, and I knew without a doubt that I would die. In fact, I was dying without him. But there was a problem, a problem named Steve. Steve was a long way from religious and not overly inclined to asking the big questions or wanting to talk about them. As a matter of fact, early in our relationship, probably on the second or third date, I wanted to get him talking. This was necessary because at this point in our budding relationship, Steve didn't do what you would call talk. He spoke in monosyllables and I was starting to need more. So I figured I'd get him talking. I'd pitch him an easy question. Here's one I thought should generate a little bit of discussion. I asked him, do you think mankind is basically good? or basically evil. He really disappointed me with his answer. He said, I think it's 50-50. How do you talk after that? I concluded that philosophical discussions were not likely to be part of our future. Despite that, I believed Steve was the only good thing in my life. So as I felt this overwhelming, loving presence fill my room that night, I knew I was being asked a question. Would I risk some sort of relationship with whatever this presence was, knowing Steve might just walk away once I told him about it, once he knew that my life was changing? Because I knew that something was fundamentally changing. 
I knew that if I chose to invite this presence into my life, everything would change. It was pretty emotional. I was bawling my face off. I didn't want to risk losing my relationship with Steve because flawed as it was, whatever sense of love and belonging I had in my life at that time came from this relationship. But I knew what I had to do. My heart knew, my soul knew. When I cried out, I need you more. I didn't know it was Jesus I was saying yes to in that moment. That understanding came later. What I knew was that something big had just happened that had the potential to recontour my life. And boy, did I need that. When I've tried to tell this story to others over the years, what comes back to me now is how completely lost I was at that time. Rudderless, unmoored, like the nowhere man in the old Beatles song. There's a lot more to this story because I was 18 then and I'm 63 now. There have been some serious missteps along the way, including nine years when Steve and I got stuck in some version of a supposedly Christian group that was really a cult. That story would require a whole other Sunday morning to tell. I have a much broader, more expansive view of God's love now than I did then. But that night in my room was when I first said a conscious yes to Jesus in my life. Jesus has shown me since that belonging did not start that night. He has always been my shepherd, and I have always been his sheep. But by not knowing that I was his sheep all those years, I was robbed of knowing that I completely belonged. I'm a lamb in his flock. He is my shepherd. I belong, and I've always My story, over to you, Eden. Wow, Lynn, that's awesome. Loved hearing your story. Um, I was laughing out loud. It's a good thing I was muted in some of the ways you used to term, or you, you, the words you used to uh, describe things. Um, absolutely awesome. 